All right, this uh, microphone is not working, so I'll have to shout. You're hearing me in the back? They're supposed to come and fix it, but... All right, they practiced what they preached. They said, we must obey God, not men. That's what they did. The Word of God is the highest authority. Not high priests, not the Sanhedrin, not church councils, not popes, not ecclesiastical pronouncements, not sociological studies, not culture, not tradition, not even articulate scholars. The Word of God is the authority. Amen. And these kind of events that John witnessed, that he saw, that he heard, these indelible memories must have had a profound effect on the way that John thought about the faith, that is to say his developing theology, and about how he lived the life of a follower of Christ, that is to say his lifestyle. You know, I've heard people say that lifestyle has nothing to do with being a Christian. It's not the way I read the Bible. It has a lot to do with it. John does not equivocate. He, his thinking is clear. It's not fuzzy. He's not ruled by sentiment, but by truth. He doesn't vacillate between things. Thinkers of our day don't like absolutes. But John does. And he doesn't hesitate to make clear distinctions between light and darkness, faith and faithlessness, sin and righteousness, the true, the true and the false. His logic, as I've said, is relentless, and he draws an unmistakable line. We're going to pause and see if he can fix this. It's on, but I don't hear anything coming through the mic here. Yeah. Let's see if we can find the amplifier back here. He draws an unmistakable line, and that's why I like John. Uh, his gospel has always been my favorite gospel of the four. Now, drawing lines like this is not popular today.
Today, it's fashionable to ignore lions, to bend them, and ultimately to erase them. Brave people like John are rarely appreciated by those that are less brave. And there's all kinds of labels that folks put on people like John that draws lines. You know, oh, you're being unkind, you're being unjust, you're being unreasonable. Now, if the church of the last hour, and that's you and me, is incapable, as John says, of distinguishing between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, it will not be prepared to meet the demands that are required in fulfilling its mission in the last hour. That's one of the most critical points that he makes in this little letter. And so we continue with our study of 1 John as the Holy Spirit, by means of this word, prepares his church to meet those demands, remembering that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So let's look at 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 7. He says, Beloved, I am writing you what happened. <laughs> I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. How about that? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, in spite of what he says. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, I know what John is talking about. You remember the story I told you? I was walking in spiritual darkness because I hated. I had hate in my heart. And there was no future for me without dealing with that sin. And then go down to, uh, let's see, where am I? Verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, he says, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, 
the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So now he begins talking specifically about love. And he introduces this section with the salutation, beloved. He uses beloved and little children, as I said, interchangeably in chapters two and three, but in chapter four, he uses it exclusively. It's a, it's a term of endearment. It means adored, cherished, treasured. And I think it takes a guy like John to use words like this. We don't expect it. After all, he's a man, and men don't talk like that. At least you ladies think we don't talk like that. <laughs> and uh, it might even make some of us men uneasy when we read what Paul says about, or what John says about love. Especially if we men find it difficult to express feelings. After all, he's a man and men don't talk like that. I've been in pastoral ministry for a long time and I've had many opportunities to counsel husbands and wives who have had marital difficulties. And I have noticed that men are reluctant to talk about their feelings. Women are not. I've had couples come for me for marital counseling and the, the woman goes through this long spiel of problems and the husband looks with a total mystified look on his face and he says, I don't know, I don't understand what she's talking about. We don't have any problems, everything is fine. But John doesn't hesitate to talk about love and about his feelings. Why? The fact that he uses the word truth at least 13 times and love 37 times in this letter ought to help us know why. He makes it undeniably clear that truth must always be presented in the context of love. Love is the motivation for truth because God is love. He not only sent Jesus to the cross, but gave us his revelation. It's because God is love that he gave us the Ten Commandments, the moral law. It's because he is love that Jesus went to the cross.
Love is the motivation for truth. Love, nothing else, is what motivates and prepares the church to meet the mission demands of the last hour. But we have to understand what kind of love that is. It's not just happy, fuzzy feelings about, you know, feeling good. It's not just about romance. Now, God, because he is love, he couldn't help but do something about it. In fact, God had to do something about it. Why? Because it is his nature to do so. You know? It wasn't enough for him to say to humanity, I love you, I love you, I love you. Don't you know that I love you? He had to do something about it to demonstrate that he really means it. And the demonstration was Calvary. He could do no other. And John said it like no other New Testament writer in just three words. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He didn't say love is God. It's a big difference. God so loved the fallen world that he did something about it. And his church, the body of Christ, as the messenger of redemption, must so love the fallen world that it does something about it. That's why you guys are going to get on those buses tomorrow afternoon and go out visiting in this community. And in this letter, John tells his church of the last hour what that something is that his church is to do about it. And overall, it is to stay uncompromisingly true to his word, no matter what. And that is what energizes the church to fulfill its mission. That is what, you know, when I say church, I mean you. I don't mean the institution, you know, the, the organization. It, I mean you. You are the church. He says, I write to you, young men, chapter 2, verse 14, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Uh, he's saying the same thing to young women. So you put your name in there too if you're, if you're a young woman. Determined to tell the truth about the truth. To walk in the light as he is in the light. not compromise the truth, not bend it to accommodate culture, nor abandon it, even if it's difficult to hold to it. 
even if there's a price to pay for holding to his truth. What is this, Christ, this business about being God's people all about anyway? This is why he says, and I've repeated it a number of times, that the church of the last hour needs to be able to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If we can't do that, we're in trouble. It's only when we walk in the light that we are guaranteed fellowship with one another. Because when we walk in the light, we're on the same page. And there's nothing, I'm going to speak from the pastoral point of view now, there's nothing more disturbing or distressing or agonizing for a pastor when the, when the members of his church are on different pages when it comes to truth. You know, it's hard enough to evangelize the world and to add to that the problem of settling issues among believers. Keeps preachers awake at night. And so he says, chapter 2, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, lives in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then he says in his third letter, his little third John, it only has one chapter. In verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's a lot of moms and dads that are praying for a lot of young people that are here at GYC. And a lot of them are rejoicing that their children are walking in the truth and are brave enough and courageous enough and faithful enough to do so in today's world. Like I said yesterday, you guys have to live in the 21st century. I lived in the 20th century. That was my century. The 21st, if, if time lasts, is yours. And it's going to have demands on you that were not on my generation, precisely because of the times. And as John says, the last hour. And there's no better place that you could be for three or four days to prepare for that than right here. So he says, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Is it working now? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. Higher. Okay. Now, can you hear me? Better? I don't have to shout and lose my voice. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. 
Yeah, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Chapter 2, verse 7. Now, there is no suggestion in what John is saying here that what he is saying replaces the word that they had already heard from God. When he uses the term old in reference to, to commandment, he does not mean that it was inadequate, antiquated, unable, impotent, and ineffective. He means that it is long-standing. It has existed for a long time. It's venerable, it's well-advanced, it's priceless. That's what he means by old commandment. The transmission of the word of God, the commandment, is an unbroken chain of divine revelation. And so having made his point of connection here, he then says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that is in God, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's, this is not new in the sense that it cancels or supplants the old, but it is new in the sense of a fresh start on the part of God's people, a new beginning. And verse 9 helps us to understand what is new about it. What is new is the spiritual quality of the old that had been lost in the accumulated religious traditions. Truth is only credible when it is demonstrated by love. And in practice, they go hand in hand. You can't have truth without love. You can't have love without truth, genuine love without truth. And that's why he says, whoever says he is in the light of God's truth and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Again, let me repeat. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the beginning. It's part of the old commandment. We should love one another. And again, chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the brothers and sisters. And then again, chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, in other words, born again, and knows God. And again, 
chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must, that's an imperative, must also love his brother. Now, when he uses the word brother here, I don't mean, I don't think that John means uh, brothers in the faith only. I think he means all human brothers, members of the same human family. No matter what color or nationality or ethnic background you are. To walk in the light to abide in the light is to walk in love, according to John. God's truth has to be practiced by his people if their witness is to have any redeeming effect. And it works like this. If you love the Lord, you will love his truth. And if you love his truth, you will love the Lord. And if you love the Lord and his truth, you will love your brothers and sisters as he does and share his truth with them so that they can find the way home. However, if the church is going to be prepared to meet the demands of the last hour mission, it cannot love the world. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 15. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? You remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And now he says, don't love the world. Now we've been talking about the church loving the fallen world like God loves it. And doing something about it like God, like God does and did. Now John says to the church, don't love the world. What's he mean? Well, he draws an unequivocal line here. And remember we said people don't like lines. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 15. The, the word world here refers to those things that are hostile to God and to take the church away from him. And then he tells us what he means by the things of the world. Do not love the things of the world, he says. He says to his people, to God's people, to his children, to his beloved to me, to you. Chapter 2, verse 16. 
What are the things of the world? He identified them already. The desires of the flesh. What is that? Lust. The lust of the flesh. Do we know what that is today? If we don't, we're blind and deaf. I'm talking about our culture. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. These are the things of the world that John tells his people not to love. Anyone in whom the word of God abides knows what John is talking about here without having to go into any detail. All you have to do is turn on the television or look at the magazine racks at the local bookstore. Or go to the movies. I don't have to go into detail. You know exactly what John is talking about. To know the revealed word of God, the will of God for righteous living, is to know the difference between good and evil. The church of the last hour is being warned by John about the devastating effect of sensuality. Now, what are all of the implications of that? You know, we could go into a lengthy discourse about that, but I'm not going to do it here. The devastating effect of sensuality and materialism on the mission of the church, which are not from the Father, he says. These are not from God. They are from the kingdom of darkness. And I want to say, I want to add here that the focus today is on sensuality, not spirituality. Now, how serious is this? Listen to Ellen White, First Testimonies 531. Those who think with your noodle, those who think they can serve the world and yet love God are double-minded. Losing all sense of their obligation to God and yet professing to be Christ's followers. They are neither one thing or the other. They will lose both worlds unless, unless they cleanse their hands and purify their hearts through obedience to the pure principles of truth. Now, you couldn't put it any simpler than that. There's, there's no trouble understanding what she means by what she says here. I don't need a scholar to interpret her words. Neither do you. So the church 
faced with meeting the demands of the last hour mission, needs people who love the Lord and who love his truth supremely more than anything else and are willing to give their lives for, for him and for his truth. People who love the world that is on the threshold of the Lord's return and have the courage to tell the truth about the truth. Who love to tell the truth. I mentioned earlier that Martin Luther is still one of my spiritual heroes. And I came across this statement from him. I, I missed the resource, the source of it. But anyway, he says, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every position of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on the battlefield, besides, is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. I gather you know that quote. So what time are we finished at, during, for this hour? 45? Okay, we got 20 minutes left, right? Is that right? Okay, we can keep on. Though this little letter was written near the end of the first century, John's thoughts as an apostle and a prophet were on the his thoughts were on the close of human history. Even more appropriate for our time than his own. Specifically on the last hour as he refers to it in chapter 2 verse 18 and the return of Jesus so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We need to remember that John was close to Jesus. He traveled with him. He watched him as he ministered to the needs of the people and of his disciples. John had heard the promise of the Lord's return from Jesus himself. He didn't get it secondhand from somebody else. He heard it from Christ. And surely John was there with the rest of the disciples when Jesus said, Quote, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Surely John heard that. That's recorded in Matthew 16, verse 27. And so John, in his gospel, he quotes Jesus' words to the disciples when Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and that where I am you may be also. John 14, 3. I will come again, he said. 
I want to add a little footnote here. Over the years uh, in the Adventist ministry, I've dis I have discovered people, members of our church, who are troubled by the so-called delay in the Lord's return. Have you heard that expression? Now, I, I've been teaching and preaching this message for 40 years, and I have never been troubled by that so-called delay. You want to know why? You want to know why? Because I believe the Bible. And Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And I believe it. So I don't even think about this so-called delay. In the first place, because it isn't a delay. Everything happens right on time in God's plan. We're the ones that are time-bound. He is not. Now, later in the Bible's last book, John says in Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye. Remember I said when you read the Bible, read it slow. Let every word impress itself on your mind. John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And John's word on this is the Bible's last word. Revelation 22:20. 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And how does John respond? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I want that carved on my gravestone. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And now John is an old man. And like I said, Last evening, that's one of the things I like about John. He, he's an old man, writing near the end of his ministry. And uh, we have something common in common. He's an old man, but he's overjoyed with that hope, the way, the, the way he ends the book of Revelation. And just as the church of the last hour will do, he lives his last hours in the throes of political, social, and religious turmoil, the same kind of world that we're living in today. Now, if you are not aware of the fact that we're living in the throes of political, social, and religious turmoil, you're already dead. <laughs> Out of it. Unaware. And if we're, if we're unaware, how can we learn to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, which is critical for the last our church to be able to do? So that we're not deceived. So that we don't deceive ourselves or the rest of the world that we're supposed to preach salvation to. The parallels between his time and ours are, are incredible. 
but his mind does not dwell on the signs, but his mind dwells on to what they point to, that to which they point. And his mind is on the church of the last hour. You know, this is incredible too. You know, I asked how could he be so prescient and how, how could he be so perspicacious? Can you imagine that old man way back there near the end of his ministry? He was thinking about us. The ones who will be living and bearing witness and testifying and preaching at, in the last hour. Incredible. Now, why is his mind, why does his mind not dwell on the signs of Jesus coming, but on that to which they point? I think because during the time of the last hour and just before the return of the Lord, there's a job to be done, a mission to be fulfilled, a mission to be finished, something to be completed. And in order for the church of the last hour to do that, it must be able to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And I'm not just talking about the theologians, the scholars. I'm talking about you. You have to be able to do this. To know the difference and to take an uncompromising stand with truth no matter what. And furthermore, that church must be prepared to meet the demands that are required by the mission to be fulfilled, finished during the last hour. This is no time for business as, as usual, in other words. And this letter is most relevant for the Protestant churches of today. It's especially relevant for us. Churches that developed on the basis of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, the Bible alone as the authority for faith and life, on which they have historically based their confession, God used Protestantism to revive Christianity after the Dark Ages. However, sad to say, some of the great Protestant churches in the face of two major antichrist religious powers are abandoning sola scriptura and in the process scuttling the reformation fulfilling the characteristics of the churches that john identifies in revelation 4 17 as the prostitute harlot daughters of the woman he called babylon the great As C. Mervyn Maxwell points out in his marvelous commentary on Revelation, God Cares, Volume 2, no daughter is born a prostitute. They choose to become so. It is a step-by-step -step process of compromise that ends in apostasy. I was recently able to say to one of my Lutheran friends who is deeply concerned about the apostasy in his Lutheran denomination, 
I was able to remind him that one of the things that Luther discovered was that you cannot reform an apostate church. He was kicked out. They would have none of him and put under the interdict, which means he was liable to be, to be arrested and executed by the civil authorities because of his defiance against Rome. Why is it impossible to reform an apostate church? Because the basis for reformation no longer exists. If you have scrapped the scriptures, there is no basis for reformation. The only thing left is what John tells us in the book of Revelation, come out of her, my people. And some of them, I keep in touch with most of them, they are in the throes of this kind of decision right now. Because they admit to me that their denomination has gone apostate. It has, in the words of one of them, fallen into heresy. What a sad situation for those, those that want to remain faithful. Can we provide a home, a spiritual home, for those who might look our way? We have to, but it can't be a home that compromises on God's truth or they will have none of it either. One of the most disastrous of those steps that lead into spiritual adultery on the part of Protestantism was buying into what is known as the historical critical method of Bible interpretation. I came face to face with that in the early 60s as a Lutheran seminary student and now they are reaping the whirlwind. And it's going to happen to us if we're not careful, if we're not watchful, if we're not willing to draw the line, even though folks won't like us and call us all kinds of names. In the historical critical method of Bible interpretation, doubt predominates over faith. And the biblical message is questioned from an increasingly secular base. And because of this retreat from sola scriptura, there are three things in this letter of John that today's Protestant churches find exceedingly difficult to deal with. Number one, the close relationship between faith in Jesus Christ and the keeping of God's commandments. Number two, the difference between preaching righteousness, uh, between practicing righteousness and practicing lawlessness. And number three, the conflict between the spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist. In the light of the last hour, 
John warns the church that he loves of the great danger to its message and its mission, the deception that is introduced by what he calls the spirit of Antichrist. The same spiritual power that opposes Christ, which, he, which Paul speaks about as the mystery of lawlessness and the lawless one. Whose appearance, Paul says, is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is by the activity of Satan with all power and signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Satan is the power behind the lawless one, behind the spirit of the Antichrist and his method is deception. First of all, he wants to convince us to deceive ourselves, which is the worst kind of deception, remember? Because if you deceive yourself, you will deceive others as well. He, his method is deception that is wicked, and he appeals to those who refuse to love the truth. If you are determined to love God's truth, the devil can't ruin you. Jesus will protect you. In Revelation 12, verse 9, John says that Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. All deception has its origin in, in, in Satan, who is the arch enemy of God. And the direction away from God's revealed truth. How? By outright rejection or by denial or by the addition of human philosophy or ecclesiastical tradition or by reinterpretation or all of these. And then attempting to persuade other people to believe a lie. Now did John know this when he wrote the words that we will now read, what do you think? Let's look at chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. And we'll finish with that. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We know it's the last hour because of the Antichrist power. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar 
but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And then down to chapter 4, the first six verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now here, you know, in these verses is the great controversy as we understand it. As it affects the, faith, the very faith and life of the members of God's church, impacting its mission, its message, message and, and, and its mission in the critical time of the last hour. Here is the great struggle for truth that will determine whether or not the church is fully prepared to meet the demands of its mission in that final hour of history. John is the only New Testament writer who uses the term Antichrist, as I mentioned earlier. And it has two meanings. It means against or opposing Christ or instead of, in place of Christ. He doesn't specifically, in his letter, identify the Antichrist. He leaves that up to us who, if we are interested and concerned enough, and the last our church ought to be, we will search for biblical and historical evidence so that we can identify the Antichrist. Especially we'll search the books of Daniel and the book of Revelation, comparing God's word with the record of events from their time up to the time of the last hour and drawing what for believing Bible students ought to be obvious conclusions. What John does tell us is that the presence of the spirit of the Antichrist and false prophets are proof that it is the last hour. Our time is up for today, believe it or not. And I still have a voice. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your inspired word. We thank you for this letter of John. We thank you for John, for his witness, for his testimony, and for, th for the fact that in his mind he was thinking of his church in the future. He was thinking about us, those who live and bear witness in the last hour. And Heavenly Father, I want to pray for everyone who is in this room. Anoint each one of us with your Holy Spirit and motivate us to be true to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.